Father, we give you thanks for the mercy that you have shown our country. We have been hell-bent on on such sin, and yet you have restrained it in our nation because you are merciful and compassionate. But your desire is to save the lost. And so help us all the more to be preachers of your gospel, ministers of compassion. Lead us as a church so that we know how what our role is to play in ministering to those who who want to fight for the right to kill their children. Still, this is not an us versus them issue. This is a gospel issue, and may we be lights in our in our state. And towards that end, we ask God that you would help us now to receive your word as truth and be transformed by it so that we live it in our lives and speak it with our mouths. We ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. While you're turning there, I want to ask that um, you would give thought to a way to serve. <clears throat> serve, <clears throat> And it has to do with a ministry that, that we haven't been involved in for several years, almost since the beginning of the church, called Love in the Name of Christ. So many of you have participated in the Church of the Week where we function as the hands and feet of this ministry taking um, needs, meeting needs like furniture, clothing, and so forth to people throughout Sacramento. Well, one of the, the biggest fundraisers that enables this ministry to continue on is the a fireworks booth. And the the wonderful thing about this um, opportunity is that when we serve with love in the name of Christ, we have to go all the way down to Fruit Ridge Road and or yeah, uh, that it yeah Fruit Ridge or something like that. Power Inn Road, Power Inn. It's way on the on the other side of town. Their fireworks booth is right here in Natomas, and so it's right off of the where the Bel Air is off of Arena Boulevard, and so I would urge you that it's in um, your bulletins. It's also in Slack. You know, if you have the uh, Slack where you receive the communication about the church, uh, there's three different places where it's listed there. I would encourage you even now, I'll give you permission to take out your phone even now and bring, click on that link and follow it because I know, I just know that once we move on and get out of here, the thought goes out the, out the... So I would encourage you to get on there and pick a slot where you can help. Um, it's very simple. You're there for four hours and you're selling fireworks, and you don't even have to know what they do because everybody knows what fireworks does. They're coming to you and handing you money so that you can hand them fireworks. That's pretty much it. No skills required other than being able to do just that. But it's, but it's a perfect opportunity for us as a church here uh, to serve uh, this ministry. So please um, don't forget this. Uh, there's many slots that are open. They're all four-hour slots. And yes, bring lots of water because it's, it's hot. Uh, but, but it's the chance to serve. Many times with love in the name of Christ, people think, oh, I wish there was more that we could do because your time goes by so quickly and then suddenly it's over for a year. It doesn't have to be that way. <clears throat> you can serve in this fireworks booth and help them raise the money that they need um, to keep this ministry going. So please look in your bulletins. Please look in Slack for the link. 
and please sign up. So we are looking at Christ's resurrection. Chapter 15 is the resurrection chapter. So we'll be looking at the resurrection and the implications of the resurrection for several weeks to come. But we're looking at this because the resurrection is the foundational truth of the gospel. And so Paul has been made aware that some in the Corinthian church are doubting the future bodily resurrection of believers from the dead. And their, their disbelief in the resurrection of believers, it's not a result of rebellion as much as it is just genuine confusion. And so Corinth was a Roman city, but it was very steeped in Greek philosophy and thought. So in the Greek worldview, there was simply no understanding as to how a physical perishable body could be made suitable for the spiritual imperishable life to come after death. And therefore the resurrection of the body just did not make sense to many. And so when Paul first came to them, he preached the gospel of them, which included the resurrection of Christ from the dead, and they believed. So any references that when he was preaching to them and teaching them initially, any references that Paul may have made about their own future resurrection, it just simply had not been grasped by many in the church. And so chapter 15 is where Paul makes his case for the resurrection of the dead, both its reality as well as how it is possible. So he begins his argument by reminding them of what he, as well as all the other apostles, have preached, namely that Christ rose physically from the dead. That's where he begins, and his approach is to start where there's total agreement that that Christ indeed rose from the dead. And then from that foundation, he's going to explain how all who die in Christ will also be raised with Christ, with new, transformed bodies that are fit for the life to come. But Paul's motivation is not just to, you know, just to correct their confusion about something to come, but it's also to motivate them to live for Christ today, right now. His goal for them is to be steadfast, and immovable in this gospel that there is a glorious future kingdom that is coming of which they will be a part. Right now, Christ is building his heavenly kingdom. He's doing it by saving sinners by his grace. Do you know this grace? Christian, God showed you this grace and he did it because he has a glorious future in store for you in a glorious kingdom that will never end. And His grace has abounded towards you. His grace will always abound towards you. And so you should abound, therefore, in His work because nothing that you do for Christ is worthless. And so towards that end, Christ, in these first 11 verses, He makes five assertions about Christ's resurrection to which There should be no disagreement from anyone who claims to be a Christian. Here they are. All Christians believe that Christ rose from the dead. The gospel declares Christ rose, died, and rose from the dead. Eyewitnesses confirmed 
Christ rose from the dead. Paul's life was radically transformed by Christ risen from the dead. And the message of Christianity proclaims Christ rose from the dead. The foundational truth of the gospel is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. This is the point of the first 11 verses. So let's read together, starting in verse 3, since we've really focused already on verses 1 and 2. Let's read 3 down through 11. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. And so the point of these first 11 verses is that the foundational truth of the gospel is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And it's upon this foundation that Paul will then build his argument for the bodily resurrection of the believer. So Paul's focus here is on the resurrection of believers to life. But the Bible teaches that the wicked will also be resurrected. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 5. He said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Later on in this chapter, Paul will explain in detail about the imperishable bodies that believers will have. But the Bible doesn't offer those same details about the resurrection of the wicked. Only that they are raised in order to face judgment and then eternal condemnation. So Scripture's emphasis is always on God's relationship to His children. So through the Scriptures, God gives the the unbeliever, though, He gives them a window to look in, to see the beauty of His grace towards sinners that He redeems. He he allows them to see the relationship with Him that's possible that they too can also enter into and enjoy through His Son, Jesus Christ. To the unbeliever, what what, what God does say, it's enough to convince you of where you should want to be. So come into this glorious family today. Come in through the mercy of Christ. Be overwhelmed by the fullness of His grace and His love towards you. Or reject Him. Reject His offer of pardon. Face judgment and condemnation forever. The choice is yours. But make no mistake, this is a limited time offer. For it's appointed for man to die once. And after this comes judgment. So Paul begins by making clear that that Christ's resurrection is a foundational truth of the gospel. But the gospel is not just a bunch of facts about Jesus' death and resurrection. 
And we need to see that at the heart of this gospel is a Savior who has conquered death. And He is at work in the world still, saving all those who trust in Him. The means of this salvation is His death for our sins. It's by His substitutionary death, His death where He paid the penalty that we deserved and that we may then go free. And by His grace, He rescues sinners like me, like you. He rescues them out of this world. He rescues them from, our, from vain, rebellious lives that revolved around vain and rebellious pleasures. And He saves. And He sends us back into the world to then work for His kingdom. His kingdom is glorious. His kingdom is eternal. And the grateful sinner will abound in that work because the one who saved him by his grace, grace is worthy and nothing done for Christ will ever be in vain. So Paul's first assertion is all Christians believe Christ rose from the dead. We see this in the first two verses. Let me just summarize what we've covered already. Um, he says in verse 2, he preached a message that they believe. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. So Paul says that he's making known to them what he preached to them back when he first came to Corinth. In other words, he's not telling them anything new here. He's reminding them of something that they seem to have forgotten. So in addition to reminding them of what he preached, he's also reminding them of their response to what he preached. They believed what he preached as truly good news because it told them about Jesus Christ and about how through his death and resurrection guilty sinners can stand righteous before a holy God. And they believed that He died and that He rose again. They received Christ as Lord and Savior. And as a result, they now stand righteous before God. They're saved from the consequences of their own sin. Right. So if you are a Christian, this is the same gospel that you heard, that you believed, because there is no other gospel by which you can be saved. Now, the reason that all Christians believe that Christ rose from the grave is because this is what the gospel declares. So here's Paul's second assertion. It's that the gospel declares that Christ died and rose from the grave. Christ died and rose from the grave or the dead. Verse 3 says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul did not make up this gospel that he preached. It was something that he received. He passed on to them like a, like a runner passes on a baton to the next one in line. So in his letter um, to the Galatians, Paul explained that, that he initially received the gospel through a revelation of Christ, right? This was on the road to Damascus. He wasn't taught this gospel by men. So Paul contradicting himself here, saying that he received it. No, not at all. The gospel that he preached to them was the gospel that he first heard and received from the risen Christ when the Lord saved him. But as he lays out there, or here he says it's probably an expression, though, of a very... Or he went on, actually, he explains that he went on and continued to hear about the gospel and be taught as well. But his initial receiving was from Christ. And now he's taking what he's received from Christ, what he also received from men, and he's delivering it to them. Now, um, later after he heard and received this gospel, 
then he went out and he began to preach it throughout the region. And one of those places was here at Corinth. And as he lays out here, it, as he lays it out here beginning in verse 3, that second half where he says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, then he appeared to Cephas and then more than 500 and so forth. As it's laid out here, most people believe that this was an early creed of the church. And, and as you look at these verses here in 3 through 5, you can see that this is clearly like a snapshot of the gospel. It's, it's boiling down the gospel to these most essential truths about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. So as we break it down, there's, four, there's basically four points to what Paul lays out here. Here they are. First one, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So the central belief of Christianity is the atoning death of Jesus Christ. His death was not some sad misadventure, but it was according to the predetermined plan of God. And this death was for our sins, meaning it was substitutionary. Jesus died on our behalf to satisfy the penalty that we deserved. Second thing, he was buried. In other words, he died a real death. You only bury corpses, people who have died. That's who you bury. And this phrase really is probably just a bridge between the cross where he died and then what comes next, which is his resurrection. Thirdly, he was raised to, on the third day according to the scriptures. So to describe the resurrection, Paul then shifts from the aorist tense of the verb, which is a typical way that the past tense is put in the Greek language, where he says he was buried, past tense, right? And then he switches the tense of the next verb to the perfect tense, where it says he was raised. So that's something that happened in the past, but the effects are still present now. His resurrection no longer belongs just in the past. It has an effect on the present, even up to this very day. He was raised. He still is raised. Jesus Christ is alive still today at the right hand of the Father. And then fourthly, He appeared to James and then to all the apostles. So just as Jesus' burial confirms the reality of His death, well, His appearance to James and the apostles, it confirms the reality of His resurrection. So these are the facts of the Gospel. But as I said earlier, I want to restate again. The gospel, though, is not simply a series of facts. It is, a mess, it is the message that God, by His grace, has acted decisively to save those whom He chose before the foundation of the world. So out of a race of sinners, God has chosen to show mercy and to rescue men, which He says will be from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. And He's not rescued them by any righteousness or effort on their part. He has rescued them solely by His grace. So this salvation is possible only through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, who accomplished this salvation by conquering death itself. Men still die. Oh, but for the Christian, the sting of death, it has been removed. Instead, in its place, He gives now the gift of eternal life. See, at the heart of this gospel 
is a death-conquering Savior. It's not the Gospel that saves you. The Gospel tells you the facts about the only Savior for sinful men and what He did for sinners who deserve only condemnation. He died for their sins as a substitute payment. He was the just, dying for the unjust. Because He had no sin of His own, death had no claim on Him. And therefore God raised Him to life again and God's pardon for sin now is offered to everyone in His name. See, this message, it's not something that Paul conceived. It's what he received. And then he faithfully delivered it to them in his preaching. So the Corinthians, they received this gospel about the death and the resurrection of Christ. They believed it, and he's calling them now to stand in it. Now we lead into Paul's third assertion. Eyewitnesses confirmed Christ rose from the dead. Eyewitnesses confirmed that Christ rose from the dead. So Paul takes this basic gospel creed of the early church in verses 3 through 5, and then it appears that he then supplements it with some additional appearances of the resurrected Jesus that essentially proves the objective reality of the resurrection. This gospel is really true. And what it declares really happened. And the Savior it proclaims is really alive and what He offers can truly be yours. So follow along with me as I read from verse 5. Listen listen as we read it together. Listen to what He is emphasizing. And that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James... Then to all the apostles, and if we were to keep going, he says, and last of all is to one untimely born, he up, born, he appeared to me also. Paul seems to be wanting to make something clear, doesn't he? Because he's repeated himself over and over. He wants there to be no mistake that after Jesus died, three days later, he rose again. And that resurrection was confirmed by those who saw him with their own eyes. The word that Paul uses here for this word that he keeps repeating, appeared, it can be translated, was seen by. So you could say that he was seen by, he was seen by, he was seen by. And the verb refers to seeing with the eyes. In other words, this was not some mystical, spiritual experience. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead, it was not some form of a spiritual experience. Jesus... Uh, Just as he was truly dead and buried, right? So he is truly raised bodily from the dead. He was seen by a large number of witnesses on several different occasions. Now the first one that Paul mentions here is Peter, which Paul likes to refer to by his Aramaic name of Cephas. Now in truth, Mark and John both say that Jesus first appeared to Mary. Mary... Uh, Matthew also mentions that he appeared to three women, of which one was Mary. Not his mother, Mary, but uh, Mary uh, of Magdala. Uh, We're also told in Luke 24 how Jesus appeared to the two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus. But in between those two appearances was when Jesus appeared to Peter, who had run to the tomb after Mary said that she had seen him. So... Paul chooses to skip over these other appearances because he wants to highlight, first of all, Peter and the Twelve. 
The Paul is emphasizing here, though, that each of these had an encounter with the risen Jesus in which they saw him with their own eyes. And the verb here is in the passive, right? He, he was seen by. The passive comes out in that way, was seen. Which means that in the passive sense, it was initiated by Jesus, not by those who saw. Jesus made himself come before them so that they could see him. He appeared to them. They didn't catch a glimpse of some mirage that was passing by and they're like, oh, was that Jesus? Some hologram. No, he encountered them and he presented himself to them as alive from the dead. This was purposeful. Now remember, the Corinthians, they're already familiar with these facts and Paul is simply recounting them. He doesn't go into any great detail here. But consider for a second why Peter is separated out from the twelve. Right? He was of the twelve, but he separates him out from the twelve as to one to whom Christ appeared. What happened the last time that Peter saw Jesus? Remember? Last time he looked at Jesus was after he had denied knowing Jesus three times. He even cursed to emphasize, I don't know him. And then after that third time of, of denying Jesus, a rooster crowed, just as Jesus said. It's going to be a rooster that crows to remind you of what I'm telling you here, Peter. And at that moment, Jesus looked across the courtyard. Peter looked at him. Their eyes locked. And Peter went out from there and he, said he wept bitterly. Peter, remember, he had boldly proclaimed before the other disciples that he would die with Jesus. But instead, he denied Jesus. Not once, not twice. Three times. So why did Jesus choose Peter to be the first that he appeared to as alive from the dead? Peter deserved it the least. Oh, but he needed it the most. He had forsaken Christ. But Christ had not forsaken him. What a kind what a kind and gracious Savior we have in Jesus. We deny Him too. We deny Him all the time. Every time we choose to sin or disobey, every time we fail to proclaim Him, we're denying Him. But even when we are faithless, He remains faithful. Jesus appeared to Peter again. and He restored him. He asked him three times if he loved him. Once for each of his denials. And then He restored him. He commanded him to care for his sheep. And then on the day of Pentecost, this man who couldn't even admit to a servant girl that he knew Jesus, he now stood in the midst of the very Jews who had called for the death of Jesus and boldly preached not only that Jesus was the Christ, but you put him to death. That's a transformed life. Now next, Paul says Jesus appeared to the twelve. This was the official title of the early in the early church of this special group of 12 men whom Jesus called to be with him. Um, this is the title by which these men were known, the 12. Now, there were other apostles, but the 12 were always referred to distinctly because of their, their close association with Jesus. So after Mary and the other women encountered the risen Jesus, we're told in Luke 24 that the other woman... Uh, that they returned from the tomb, they reported all these things, and it says, to the eleven and to all the rest. So, even though they were known as the twelve, 
there was only 11 of them at this time, right? Remember? Because Judas had betrayed Jesus and then in remorse gone out and killed himself. So Jesus, he then appeared in the room with the 11 as well as the other disciples who were there. They watched him eat some fish. We looked at that passage uh, two weeks ago. They touched him. They knew that he was not a phantom. And as a result, each member of the 12 or of the 11 here would then go on the go on to boldly proclaim Jesus to the nations. All of them, all of these 11 who remained, and then eventually Matthias was put in as the 12th, all of them would suffer persecution as they went out and preached the risen Christ. And all of them, with the exception of John, would be martyred for what they believed. See, they went and they did this because they were proclaiming a Savior they knew, without a doubt, was alive from the dead. They had no fear of death. Jesus had taken it away. He'd conquered death. So they could go preach Him even if it meant their death because death was just going to be with Christ. What else explains why they would be so willing to die? They'd seen Him with their own eyes. They touched Him with their own hands. He was alive from the dead. And so not even the threat of persecution or jail or death could shut them up. They were proclaiming the good news of a death-conquering Savior. Now verse 6 says, After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. So by brethren, that is a common generic enough term that he's not excluding women by calling them brethren. So women are included in this too. It was well known that Jesus had women as well as men among his disciples who traveled with him. Now, we don't know exactly when Jesus appeared to this group of more than 500. So scripture is silent on this, but there's one good possibility that we can put forward that's in Matthew 28, when Jesus appeared to Mary at the tomb. He told her, he says, go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. And Matthew says, the 11... They went to a mountain in Galilee, and there it was that, that it says that some, that they worshipped him. It says, but some, it's kind of strange, it says some were doubtful. So even though the text says that the eleven went to this mountain, the fact that some were doubtful leads many to wonder if this was also the large gathering to which Paul is referring to here. It was, it was there that the risen Jesus, the one with all authority in heaven and on, and on earth, commissioned his disciples to go and make disciples of the nations. And that is what they went out and did. Not just the eleven, but many others as well. They saw him alive. They saw him with their own eyes. And many of those 500 plus disciples, Paul says, they're still alive. Some have died, but notice how he puts it. They've just fallen asleep. I think that's because he's talking about the resurrection. They didn't say they died. They fell asleep. Why? Because sleeping is temporary. Sleeping is followed by waking up. As sleeping precedes waking, death precedes resurrection. See, when you serve a death-conquering Savior, that which men fear the most, death, can now be likened to sleep from which you will soon awaken. Next, Paul says that Jesus appeared to James, which testifies to his importance in the early church. This was James, the brother of Jesus. So... After giving birth to Jesus, Mary and Joseph 
had other sons. She did not remain a perpetual virgin. And James, along with his other brothers, they didn't believe that their oldest brother, Jesus, was the Son of God. And we see a glimpse of, of this in John chapter 7 when Jesus was in Galilee. It was the time of the Feast of Booths. Um, and so brothers do what brothers do, right? They made fun of their brother, Jesus. Maybe it was jealousy. Maybe it was just sibling rivalry, who knows? But they mocked Jesus. They were saying, well, you obviously want publicity, so, well, you better get yourself up to, Jer- up to Judea where you can you know, do your miracles and promote your ministry and, and gain a bigger following. So why would they mock him like this? Well, he tells us in John 7, verse 5, he says, For not even his brothers were believing in him. And James was one of those who did not believe that his older brother was the Son of God. All the evidence was there to see, right? But but James and his brothers, they were blind to who he truly was. You know, think about what a conversion that must have, have been. James sees Jesus alive from the dead and unbelief is gone Forever, he bowed down and he worshipped his brother as the Savior who conquered death. And then it says Jesus appeared to all the apostles. Now this can be a little confusing here since Paul said already that he appeared to the twelve. And some wonder if Paul maybe was saying that he appeared to each of the twelve individually. That's a possibility here, but... It's equally likely that Paul has in mind a larger group who came to be known also as apostles. See, there were the twelve, right? They were the the definite group who had a special relationship to Jesus and they they likely served in some authoritative capacity in the early church. But, But there were many more who had seen the risen Christ and they had been commissioned to proclaim the gospel to the nations. Maybe even in Matthew 28 when they're on the mountain in Galilee. The scriptures, as you read them, list several others who were called or possibly called apostles. It's not definite, but it's very likely, right? We have James, we have Barnabas, and then possibly Silas, Apollos, Andronicus, Junius. These are all people who were likely called apostles. These individuals, they went out preaching and making disciples of a Savior who they knew was alive from the dead because they'd seen him with their own eyes. So Paul's purpose, then, in providing this list of eyewitnesses, well, it certainly provides sufficient evidence to any of the Corinthians who who maybe at this time were still doubting that Christ rose from the dead. He says many of these 500 witnesses, they're still alive. You can seek them out. But that wasn't really necessary because the arisen Christ had appeared to Paul. He appeared to the Twelve. He appeared to the 500. He appeared to James and to the apostles, and then he also appeared to Paul. And so what I think he's really emphasizing here is he's saying that all, all of them who I've just named to you, they were all, were all unified on this foundational truth of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. See, one person isn't out there saying one thing, and another person saying something else. There is no conflicting details about what they all saw. He appeared to all of them, They all encountered the risen Jesus. They all saw him with their own eyes. And if what they saw, if it were to have produced conflicting details in the early church, 
this movement would have imploded upon itself. It could not have survived. Christianity would have been dead on arrival. But it didn't conflict. It was unified. They all saw the risen Jesus. But what might Paul what Paul might also be doing is simply verifying that the message of Christ that he delivered to them, it goes all the way back to that third day when they found the tomb empty. Every one of these appearances of the risen Christ, right down to his, they were the same. And Paul was simply the last one in the list. And in his estimation as well, the least. And his life was never the same. So here's Paul's next assertion. His life was radically transformed by the risen Christ. Paul's life was radically transformed by the risen Christ. And so in describing the impact Christ's appearance had upon him, he first mentions two details about himself. He was last in time and he was least in dignity. So first Paul says he was last in time. So even though Christ's appearance to Paul, it occurred quite a bit later than the other appearances that he's listed, and no one else was there to even verify this event, right? And say, oh yeah, I was there, Paul, when that happened. We don't have anybody saying that. Nonetheless, Paul still confidently includes it among the list of all these other appearances. And notice that as, as you look here, when you read through the verses 3 through 5, or 6, 5, yeah, 5 on, you see, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and he says, then to James, then to the apostles, and then last to him. Right? So, can you get that this is a succession, right? Four times he's using then, and then last of all, he appeared to me also. So, he's, he's listing these appearances in a chronological order of which Paul was simply the last one in the list. Now, Paul is not just last in this list. He's also the last one that Christ appeared to from the dead, period. And we, this, the scene where it happened is well known to all of you, I'm sure. It's in Acts chapter 9. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul... Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up, enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. See, the Lord's appearance to Paul was of the same nature as all the others. But Paul is stating here that it was also the last in the succession of his appearances. Now, I don't think in saying last that Paul was, was necessarily stating categorically that he was the last apostle. Not here. But as it turns out, he was the last. He was the last one at that time, and he was the last one, period. As it turned out, he was the last. We have no other accounts in Scripture of, of Christ appearing and appointing to apostle anyone else. And as the last, we shouldn't expect any others to follow. Through the apostles' teachings and his writings, we're told... They laid the foundation of the church. Paul served a significant part in that process, right? Preaching, establishing churches, writing over half of what became the New Testament scriptures. Right? Paul calls that the grace of God at work in him in verse 10. 
See, this, this work of laying the foundation, it's been done. It's been done for over 2,000 years because over the last 2,000 years, Christ has now been building his church upon that foundation which Paul and the other apostles laid. You don't build another foundation once it's laid. It was laid when the apostles' time was done and it's been being built on ever since. And Christ was the last one appointed as an apostle. Now, just as Christ personally chose the original 12, Christ says he also chose me personally. And he chose me to be an apostle specifically to the Gentiles. Uh, Here's the risen Lord. This is what he told Paul when he recounted it in Acts 26. He said, for this purpose, this is Jesus speaking to Paul, for this purpose I've appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm now sending you. So Paul, you know, he never included himself as a member of the Twelve. He was always distinct from them. But he still knew that his appointment by Christ as an apostle was no less genuine. And the early church knew this as well. In terms of time, though, Paul was the last apostle that Christ personally appointed. But in Paul's mind, the, the nature of Christ's appearance to him, it differed from those of Peter and the Twelve in only one detail. When Christ appeared to him, he was not yet a follower of Jesus. He was instead a persecutor of the church. And as an apostle then, he was last in time, but Paul also saw himself secondly least in dignity. He was least in dignity. He says in verse 8, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul refers to himself here as one untimely born. Very interesting word. The word literally literally refers to any kind of premature birth, be it an abortion, stillbirth, miscarriage. It refers to a fetus that's been expelled from the womb before being fully formed. This was Paul's self-assessment when Christ appeared to him. He's comparing himself in his, in his wretchedness as an unbeliever and a persecutor of the church to an aborted fetus. And so to the Jewish way of thinking, he was stressing his, his spiritually deplorable state whose life is miserable and worthless. See, when Christ appeared to him, he could not reach down, Paul says, any lower than him. And Paul is saying that in calling him, he was calling someone who was totally unfit for the task that God was calling him to do. And here we see just how radically Paul's life was transformed by grace. And what Christ did in calling Paul is what he does when he calls any sinner to himself. See, if you're here and you're not a Christian, Christ can do with you what he did with Paul. Now first, the Lord related to him by grace... And he removed his sin. He pardoned him from all his sins by being judged in Paul's place so that he could be fully forgiven, finally justified. And in that moment when Christ appeared, Paul knew what he deserved. 
in his murderous hatred of the church, he was persecuting the Lord himself. Scales that blinded him to see Christ, they fell away. He, he knew himself to be this self-righteous wretch of the worst kind. And yet God dealt with him by grace. Christ was judged in Paul's place so that he could pardon this chief of sinners. Pardon him of all his rebellion and his hatred and his unworthiness. All that Paul is as a believer and an apostle is by the grace of God. God can do this for you. He's ready to relate to you, not according to the condemnation that you now deserve, but by grace. And because He is gracious, He died in the place of sinners so that He could remove all your sins. That is what He wants to do for you. He wants to remove all your sins. He wants to separate them from you as far as the east is from the west. Secondly, the Lord who receives sinners, He reclaimed Paul. Paul was a self-righteous man. He was was blinded that he was a sinner. He couldn't see his sin because he was doing it in God's name. And this is true of all of us. We can't see our sin until Christ draws us and convicts us of our unrighteousness so, so that we see our worthiness of condemnation. See, when that happens, the blame game, it stops. It's no longer anyone else's fault. You're no longer a victim. What you are is a sinner. You're a rebel. And here's what Paul told Timothy. If you'd like to follow along, look at Timothy chapter 1, 12 through 16. It's worth following along. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 12 through 16. Here's Paul talking to Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. And yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. You need an example of what Christ can do? Look at Paul. His life was radically transformed by this risen Savior and he can radically transform yours. You can know this same forgiveness. The third thing he did was he renewed Paul's heart. He transformed him from from being an enemy into an ambassador. And then lastly, he redirected Paul's life to serve him and his kingdom. Look here at verse 10, back in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. See, though he was unfit for the task that God had called him to, well, God's grace overcame. He was dead before God's call and his conversion. But the risen Christ appeared to him, raised Paul from the dead by his grace, so to speak. God gave him life through his grace. And then God made him sufficient to be a minister of God's grace, of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's what he's ministering now. Not a ministry of the letter, but, the, but of the Spirit who gives life. And then Paul came to realize who God truly was. 
God had been so gracious to him. He had been an enemy of God, but, but this is the way God is towards all, Paul realized, without distinction, be they Greek or Jew. He wasn't worthy. But grace takes the unworthy, takes the inadequate, and empowers and equips them, makes them sufficient. And he's not boasting in himself here when he says he labored more. No, he's boasting in the Lord because it was his grace that enabled him to do what he did. So Paul's life was radically transformed by the grace of the risen Christ. He'll do the same for you if you will cast aside your self-righteousness, your rebellion, and humbly come to him and seek his forgiveness. I'll conclude with Paul's conclusion here in verse 11. He says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. The fifth assertion is the message of Christianity proclaims Christ rose from the dead. The message of Christianity proclaims Christ rose from the dead. See, Christ's resurrection is the one common denominator on which all Christians agree. It is non-negotiable. It cannot be set aside without gutting the Christian faith. You know, if someone were to come to you and say, you know, I, b- I believe in America. I believe in the American system of life. But I just don't like the Constitution. I'd like to get rid of the American Constitution. That doesn't, that doesn't work. You get rid of the American Constitution, in which, is, which is a founding document in which the founding principles of America are put forth. You remove the Constitution, you gut America for what it is what it could be. See, the resurrection of Christ is the foundational truth of the gospel. You remove this out of Christianity and you have gutted Christianity of what it is. It's just a bunch of moral people looking down their noses at other people proclaiming belief in a Jesus who's still in the grave, but they say he isn't. See, the risen Christ transforms lives. He can transform your life. He has already reached as low as he possibly could, humanly speaking, when he saved the Apostle Paul, a persecutor of the church. He considered himself an aborted fetus before God. And by his power, he'll do the same for you. Believe this gospel. Receive this Christ. By him, and by him alone, you can stand righteous before a holy God. But know this, those he saves, he transforms, he uses. And so serve this Christ with all your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we glory in your plan for salvation. You sent your Son into the world to die, but in his death he conquered death itself. And this is who we proclaim, a gospel about a death-conquering Savior. And it is upon this foundation that the church has been built, and it is upon this foundation that wretches like me have been transformed to serve the King. Thank you for your grace. It is all by your grace because you are merciful, and you are kind, and you are patient, and you are good. And we praise your name. And we pray you will save those who are lost by calling them to yourself, showing them what you did for them on the cross and giving them life in Christ. We ask this in your Son's name.